Hi, this is Josh Porter. I'm on a team with several other men and women who together help lead this thing called Van City Church. This year, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, some of our musicians got together and wrote and recorded a song called Broken King, and we released it under the band name End of Death. It's available now from all digital music retailers and streaming services like Apple Music, Spotify, iTunes, and the like. I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 53 in our series, The Gospel of Matthew. As we've been working our way through Matthew, there's been subtle moments where the disciples seem to not be 100% on the same page as Jesus. The way Jesus responds to the disciples is fascinating and informative, helping to shape a paradigm for us when we aren't on the same page with him either. All right, my friends, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. That is Matthew chapter 15. We've been uh, working our way through this first century biography of Jesus for the last couple of years. Uh, the pace is intentional, though. Uh, we think of ourselves as apprentices of Jesus, and if you're new here, that might sound uh, a touch strange. Uh, the more common names for people like us are Christians or followers of Jesus. And while we identify ourselves uh, with Jesus, as the name Christian denotes, and while we uh, also follow Jesus' teachings and lifestyle, as followers of Jesus denotes, um, we call ourselves apprentices of Jesus because it communicates something a bit more full. Uh, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things that Jesus did, Some, much like someone practicing a trade skill. Since that's our goal, then the words and, and actions and lifestyle of Jesus and the bass amp, apparently, too, this will be, this will be, thanks, Patrick. I see you got it. You're the expert. Thanks, dude. I appreciate you, dude. Um, since that's our goal, then the words and actions and lifestyle of Jesus um, should be really important to us. And so we've been taking our time working through this uh, biography of Jesus line by line. So if you're new or you've, you've missed some of the weeks, then go back and listen to the teachings on our podcast because Matthew's biography is a cohesive story that builds on itself. So you're just dropping, if you're just dropping right into the story tonight, you'll be missing some of the valuable context, even though we're still glad you're here with us tonight. My wife Hannah and I will be celebrating 10 years of marriage in August of this year. Yeah, that's exciting. We made it, baby. Uh, back on August 23rd, 2009, uh, I married my sweet, sweet Hannah. Uh, we were 21 and 22, respectively, uh, fairly young, but I knew I wanted to go all in on this one woman, and that I wanted to be her husband and she my wife. So we exchanged vows and rings, and I kissed the bride, and then we partied with the 200 people that were there. It was a great time. We have pictures, I think. Uh, this ceremony marked a change of status, both uh, spiritually and legally. I immediately became Hannah's husband in that moment. You know, like, now what? Well, I guess we need to move in together uh, and then start actually living out this new reality of marriage. 
It was really good, but, but kind of hard at the same time. Uh, you're, tr- you're feeling things out. I didn't have a paradigm of marriage growing up, coming from a single-parent household. So the first few years especially felt like trying to build a house without any blueprints or natural skills, just YouTube. You know, you're just going for it the best you can. And so I listened to what other husbands said and did. Some of it was good. Some of it was not so good. And our church context at that time was one in which... Uh, I first heard the idea of a wife submitting to her husband. And I was completely ignorant of the fact that the scriptures call both spouses to submit to one another. But I held on to this distorted idea I had heard and thought to myself, well, I'll see if that works. Uh, And for some reason, I thought the best time to try it out was in the middle of an argument as well. So there's Hannah and I, a year or two into our marriage, and we're fighting about something in the car while I'm driving. And I remember turning to her and looking at her and saying, Hannah, you just need to submit to me. (laughs) (laughs) And you know those moments when uh, you say words, but like as you're saying them, you wish you could like catch them and like put them back in your mouth because you're like, that's that's not a good idea. That was my moment right there. I was just like, "Uh uh-oh, that was not the right thing to say. Unfortunately, what was said was said, and I don't actually remember what Hannah said exactly in response, but her facial expression when I said those words is forever burned in my memory. (laughs) Uh, So I I learned a valuable lesson, and it became part of uh, the process of me growing as a husband because of it. It's kind of a fun story I get to tell couples when we're doing premarital counseling with them to say, don't think or do that, okay? Okay. As we've been working our way through Matthew, there's been subtle moments where the disciples seem to not be 100% on the same page as Jesus. There's some like curtness here or there, some telling questions they've asked, and tonight it's going to come to a head. So you guys ready to read it? Look down with me at Matthew 15, starting in verse 29. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet. He healed them. Um, the people were amazed when, he saw the, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Okay, so there's a couple things uh, going on here that we need to pay attention to. Um, two weeks ago, while working through Matthew, we read about Jesus uh, taking his disciples to a non-Jewish region. And, and while there, a Gentile woman asked Jesus to heal her daughter, and an interesting exchange ensued. If you weren't here for it, go back and listen to the teaching on the podcast. Really good, really interesting uh, section. In that interaction, Jesus tells the woman that his priority is to the Jewish people first as the Messiah. She convinces him, though, that this doesn't mean he can't help her, and and Jesus agrees and and heals her daughter. She convinces Jesus to do otherwise. Again, a a fascinating encounter, and one that seems to have made an impact on Jesus, because where Jesus ends up in our story tonight seems to be a Gentile region, and here he is healing a crowd of Gentiles, and and notice their response. It's amazement and praise. These Gentiles aren't praising their, uh, one of their pagan gods. They are praising Israel's God. Their God must be doing something special, they're thinking, you know, something incredible, because look what's happening through this Jewish rabbi. So with their response to Jesus in mind, let's keep reading, because this story starts to take on an air of familiarity. 
Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send away, uh, them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowds to sit down on the ground. Then he, he took the seven loaves of fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the, the disciples, and they, in turn, to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Okay, so if this sounds familiar to you, you've been coming to church. Good job. Uh, Matthew tells another story of Jesus feeding a crowd of thousands with the most meager of supplies. He told a story of 5,000 being fed just one chapter prior to this in chapter 14. There are some subtle differences, uh, uh, but also intentionality to Matthew adding another feeding story, even though this one is less impressive numerically speaking than the first. Uh, there's a difference with how, many, how much leftovers the disciples gather afterwards, and we've also mentioned that this is most likely a Gentile crowd being filled. Those, those are, are fed. Those are two, my, uh, two of the differences. Uh, what's more fascinating, though, is what isn't different. The disciples' response to Jesus' compassion on the crowds. The crowd has been there three days hanging around Jesus, and he shows concern for their well-being as they prepare their journey back home. And, and much like the first feeding, the disciples seem to respond with a curtness and a pragmatism that hints at their annoyance or downright frustration with Jesus wanting to care for such a large crowd. Whereas in the first miracle, the disciple, feeding miracle, the disciples take the initiative to offer Jesus what they have, which was five loaves and a few fish. This time, Jesus has to prod them for an inventory of what they could use to feed the crowds. And some scholars point to the disciples' response to Jesus as dripping with sarcasm. They complain that they are out in a remote place, which could be translated literally as like a, well, a wilderness or a desert, and their compassionate leader wants to feed all of these Gentiles. It's almost as if they're saying, here's our rabbi out of touch with reality again. And yet their response should be somewhat baffling to us. It's as though Matthew wants us to be squirming in our seats thinking, wait, wait what in the world? Jesus just did this, and you don't remember? Scholar Dale Bruner says this of the disciples. What is particularly disappointing is the disciples' swift loss of memory. They think it is Jesus who lacks presence of mind, but it is really they. Disciples almost always forget Jesus' competence. But Jesus is actually kind of reserved in the moment towards his disciples. He does not address the disciples' response to him and the situation. He instead focuses on feeding the crowds. Afterwards, he dismisses them. They get into the boat and head on their way. You know, I wonder if that boat ride was like one of those quiet times where like uh, there's, uh, there's been an argument and you're sitting in a car and it's just like really quiet. You know, like the moment is pregnant with silence? I don't know. We'll, we'll never know because the scene shifts very quickly. Look down at verse 1 of chapter 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. So the Pharisees were the populist religious authorities. They were religious conservatives concerned with faithfulness to God through keeping the Torah. 
the Sadducees were the ruling religious elite. They were the dominant group in the ruling political body called the Sanhedrin, meaning any political or religious changes came at their expense primarily. Generally, these two groups were enemies of one another, something like our modern-day political system with Democrats and Republicans. But here we see them united. This group... Uh, asking for a sign seems to be an official group sanctioned by the Sanhedrin sent to investigate this peasant Rabbi Jesus who's been making waves for some time now. And so they want proof, some proof as to the validity, validity of Jesus's ministry and teachings. They want a sign from heaven. And we might not get the subtlety, but a sign is different from miracles in the minds of the religious elite. Miracles could be done through demonic means in order to lead people astray, but a sign from heaven would deliver incontrovertible proof that God was approving and empowering a person. And so Jesus' response is interesting. Jesus replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. This is actually the second time a group of religious leaders asked Jesus for a sign from heaven. Uh, the first time back in chapter 12 was a little bit more informal, the group was, but it still elicited a similar response from Jesus with him referring to them as a wicked and adulterous generation and mentioning the sign of Jonah. And what exactly Jesus meant by this sign is a bit up for debate. Was it Jesus's teaching? Was it his death? Was it his resurrection? And, and it seems to be a reference to his, re, his resurrection. I think that's where I would land the plane. You know, the single miraculous event that all of Christianity hangs on. Uh, disprove the resurrection, and honestly, we're done here. Uh, we can all just go home. That was the sign the religious leaders would be given if they really wanted incontrovertible proof. But why is Jesus so harsh? A wicked and adulterous generation. Why not just do something to prove who he is? Well, first of all, the religious leaders came to test Jesus. The last time Jesus was tested and challenged to prove who he was came all the way back in chapter 4 with Satan testing Jesus, challenging him to prove that he really is the Son of God. It seems then that the religious leader's motivation for a sign is out of malicious intent. Jesus is a threat to their position as the religious authorities and the political authorities. If he is both a teacher and a king, what place is there for them? But still, I mean, couldn't he just do something amazing to prove to them who he is and get them on his side? Jesus' point about predicting the weather and the signs of the times is an allusion to the fact that his entire life is the sign from heaven. Yahweh in the flesh and blood is the greatest sign from heaven they could hope for. There are signs, they just haven't been reading them correctly. A prophet named Isaiah wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus, speaking to God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So, of course, there was Jesus' birth from hints uh, you know, and slighted comments the religious leaders make throughout the biographies of Jesus. It seems that there's at least some awareness that Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. 
Uh, and there was also now the, the now dead prophet John, the, the one Isaiah foretold would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. But the religious leaders weren't big fans of John either. And even if that is all lost on them, Isaiah says this in chapter 35 of his book. The desert, which is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same root word the disciples used for the place where the crowd, uh, the 4,000 were at. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of Yahweh, the splendor of our God, speaking of the, the desert transforming into a fertile, beautiful land. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. Now that's archaic language to us, but think like swift, immediate justice against evil. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leak like a, a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Again, that same word the disciples used to describe the place of the crowds. So, sign anyone? <laughs> Jesus was just doing all of that in the desert. Isaiah says, your God will come to save you, and this is how you'll know. And the relig religious elite say in response, eh, not good enough. Show us something better. These people should know better than anyone else. Most likely, these Pharisees would have had this section of, I of Isaiah memorized for crying out loud. And so it's interesting. The last sentence of verse 4 is striking. Jesus then left them and went away. Many commentators note that the word choice in, in Greek can have the connotation of abandoning someone. It's as if Jesus is saying, enough. I'm done with you guys. Jesus then takes his disciples. They head off away from this region of Galilee, and he will not be back. So with the thousands having been fed and the religious elite's challenges fresh in mind, Jesus and his disciples set out once again. Look down at verse 5. You guys doing all right? Yeah, let's do this. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Okay, so with all this stewing in their minds, the disciples have this oh shoot moment. <laughs> they forgot bread or food for their trip. I mean, kind of the basic thing to remember, and there's 12 of them, you would think somebody would remember the food. You know, it's like one of those bad jokes of, like, how many disciples does it take to screw in a light bulb? Well, that sort of thing. Like, that's, that's the moment where you're like, are you serious? But Jesus' mind is on something else. You know, speaking cryptically, he warns them of the yeast of the religious leaders. Yeast was used in the baking of bread, but it was at times used as a metaphor for something small and subtle affecting the big picture. The disciples start talking among themselves, thinking Jesus is ticked, they forgot the bread. Again, it's as if Matthew is intentionally framing the disciples as almost unrealistically dense, 
Clearly, Jesus is not talking about bread, but this moment provides a a teaching opportunity. Look down at verse 8. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So Jesus finally calls them on it. This growing sense of the disciples not understanding what Jesus is all about. It's kind of been building for chapters at this point. Not only did they not understand what Jesus had been warning them about, they also seem, had seen incredible miracles of Jesus feeding thousands of people with leftovers, and yet they were worried about their own inability to feed themselves. These very disciples who had heard Jesus say with their own word, uh, with their own ears back in Matthew chapter 6, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, (laughs) or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. How are they so dense? It's important to read Jesus' response, though, with the bluntness that it's intended to have, but realize that this is not a harsh response. Jesus is harsh with the religious elites who have hardened their hearts against him, the ones who should know better. He's harsh with the religious elites, but he's blunt with his disciples. They need to understand that they are men of little faith, or little faiths, literally, not as a put-down, but as an adequate description of their current state. The disciples need to realize that they are missing something big, that they look a bit like the religious leaders, unable or unwilling to read the signs. But here's what's so cool about this interaction with Jesus. So he calls them out for not understanding what he's been up to and and how that reveals who he is. And and, and then it's as if, like, Jesus is like, okay, so you're not getting it. You need to understand that you're not getting it. And now let's try that again. And he repeats the same metaphor about the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then the disciples understand it for themselves. Their understanding increases through Jesus' correction and patience. Now, what does Jesus mean exactly by the yeast? You know, what's the specific teaching the disciples should be careful of? There's a ton of debate about this. Ironically enough, there's not a consensus. Uh, in fact, I think all five commentaries I read had five different to varying degrees opinions about what this you know, teaching could be. And yet maybe the ambiguity of it is intentional on Matthew's part. It almost forces us to stop and say, wait a minute, what, what is the teaching? Do, do I need to be aware of it as well? It's almost as if it forces us to place ourselves in the same camp as the disciples for the moment. And for us tonight, that's, I think, exactly what this story is calling us to do. This story begs the question, are we actually any better than they were? The failure of the disciples in this story is twofold. They don't understand Jesus, and they don't understand what it means to be his disciples. And the the two really go hand in hand. 
I love what Matthew does with his narrative. There are um, three groups of people responding to Jesus, the religious leaders, the disciples, and then uh, don't forget, you know, the, the crowd of Gentiles. The religious leaders are threatened by Jesus and don't care to see what's going on. The Gentile crowd, they get it, though. They see Jesus healing people. They praise the God of Israel. They're celebrating what's happening through this Jesus guy. And you would expect Jesus' disciples to be celebrating with the crowd what Jesus has been doing. But instead, they're portrayed almost like pouting teenagers skulking off to the side. It's obvious irony that Matthew is drawing out of the story. They're missing that Jesus is exemplifying that old adage, actions speak louder than words. Jesus isn't saying to them, hey guys, I'm the creator God, Yahweh in the flesh and blood. He, he's just doing things only Yahweh can do. He's also doing things that Yahweh said, I'm going to do this myself. If they could connect the dots, they would see that the long-awaited Messiah is actually Yahweh. But the disciples are, are missing it, and, and because they are missing it, they are missing Jesus demonstrating what kind of God Yahweh is. He heals the outcasts and the unclean. He has compassion on the needs of those who come for him to help regardless of ethnicity. He feeds and eats with those far from him. His mission is to, be, is to the Jewish people, yes, but in order that his new kingdom can be inaugurated and spread to the entire world, to both Jew and Gentile. And here's something surprising about this story, if you didn't know already. Um, it's these very disciples who are messing up. They're the ones who have recorded their own failures for everyone to read. They could have tried to make themselves look good or at least omitted this story so they don't look quite as bad. Um, but this story tells of their own teaching moment and then also provides for us a teaching moment as well. And this is where, for us, we need to take a moment of just frankness, of bluntness, to look at our own lives and the moments of anger, impatience, cynicism, gossip, pride, objectifying the opposite sex, and say, wait, I I'm missing something important here. When our actions or attitudes are out of line with Jesus, the king of the universe, it's, it's easy to justify ourselves, to make excuses as to why it's okay to not be like Jesus. And it's hard to say, you know what, there is something off with me. And this is my second point. If you don't understand who Jesus is, then you do not understand how to apprentice him. And what I don't mean by this is, you know, checking off mental categories of belief about Jesus, although that, that's a step in the process. But when you have faith in Jesus, in the sense that the scriptures use that word, then you go all in with your entire life on Jesus. He becomes your king and the authority on what it looks like to live life to the fullest. Because the reality is that we will all fall short in many ways and many times, that is an inevitability. We will be the ones at some point who frustratingly do not get it. But it's in the hardest moments of failure, the moments where there is such a strong urge to defend yourself and justify your actions when the reality of your apprenticeship is revealed. 
I'm so, I'm so grateful, uh, very, very grateful uh, that in the moment eight or nine years ago when I demanded that Hannah submit to me, that I can use it as a funny story, um, that I can not only see the ridiculousness of it, but that the inevitable harm that thinking would have reaped in my marriage, the pain that sort of thinking would have caused Hannah, you know, a sort of domineering, angry approach to being a husband. Instead of one, of self-sacrificial love and kindness, you know, what the New Testament commands husbands to have for their wives. And here's my last point in all of this. Apprenticing Jesus is also a journey of figuring out as we go, making mistakes and bad choices along the way. There is an, an unavoidable process to all of this, one mixed with success and failure. And for some, that's a frightening thing, failing in front of Jesus. What will he say to me? How will he respond? Is he angry? And those are questions I would guess every single person has at some point, sometimes quite often, maybe even still today. You know, it, it comes from the fact that understanding who Jesus is is also a process. Notice uh, that this tension with the disciples has been building for chapters, and it's only here that Jesus directly confronts it. With bluntness, yes, but, but not with harshness. His motivation for calling them out is that he wants them to understand what's going on. And he wants us to understand as well. You, you may be thinking like, listen, that's all nice and stuff, but I'm trying to figure out my life right now. I don't have time for a process. This is a thought that in some variation is quite common in our church, we are a young church, something like 95%, 18 to 35, which is not the ideal. We'd really love some more people not in that age range. Um, but here we are, right? So let's, let's figure this thing out. Within this age range, people generally ask the question, what should I do with my life? Whether it's in the context of school, career, marriage, what have you, these big life choices generally get asked. And, and then there's the inevitable pressure to have the answer. And since we apprentice Jesus, the question usually has the undertone of, what does Jesus want me to do? I don't want to make the wrong choice. And I'm thankful for that desire to have Jesus be the king of our big life decisions. It's a great thing. But uh, before being a part of Van City, uh, I was a youth pastor at a church, and I'd meet with kids from time to time when they wanted to talk about their you know, future potential career or college choices. And hate is a strong word, um, but I'm not quite sure what other word to use. I, I hated those meetings. <laughs> uh, I had no idea what to tell them. It almost feels like when you're like a magic eight ball and somebody just shakes you and says, what's the answer you're going to give me? And then they base their life on, you know, what some youth pastor says to them. I didn't want any part of it. But thankfully, early on in seminary, uh, uh, I was taught a really helpful paradigm by one of the much older, wiser uh, guys there. Often we, went, uh, we want black and white answers and black and white responses to those answers. That's a comfortable thing, but that's not often real life, quite frankly. He said, um, understanding apprenticeship to Jesus as directional as a directional process helps formulate different questions and thusly different answers. 
You can make decisions that either move you closer to Jesus or further from him. The greatest concern isn't if our decisions result in success or comfort or happiness. The greatest concern is our closeness to Jesus. For instance, I went to college for political science and studied Russian in order to become an analyst at the CIA. Um, Not like a Jason Bourne type guy, but one of the desk guys because being a field operative looks like way too much work. Um, Fast forward almost a decade and, and here I am not working for the CIA and definitely not using and hardly remembering any Russian. So, uh, was it wrong for me to go to school for political science? Uh, I guess maybe, but probably it's actually not the right question to ask. Was it a mistake for me to study that subject? Again, maybe it was, but I still don't think it's the right question to ask. How about, did going to school for political science draw me closer to Jesus or take me further away from him? And I think that's the best question to ask because the most important thing is not what degree you'll get or what career field you'll choose or whether or not you'll get married, although those are all really important decisions. The more important question is whether you're progressing in your understanding of Jesus and your apprenticeship to him. Think about it. You could make a choice that ends up resulting in hardship. You could choose a degree path that you hate, a career that feels soul-sucking, or a spouse that is difficult. Um, And maybe you made a bad decision or a series of bad decisions that led you to that place, but the constant thing that remains through all of it is Jesus' presence and your relationship with him. Remember the disciples. Jesus isn't panicking that they don't get him. He isn't angry that they're so dense. He isn't harsh when he tells them they aren't getting it. He calls them out in the proper moment in order to teach them, in order to help them get what's going on. The Pharisees and Sadducees, on the other hand, are moving away from Jesus. They are making decisions that are hardening their hearts towards him to the point where they will have him executed for political and religious expediency. Jesus is in the way of their plans. When I was first studying political science, I had a pragmatism that forced me to separate Jesus' authority from the ethics of how to live in the world as a political operative. Uh, For the sake of expediency, I had to keep Jesus over here so that I could believe in an ends justify the means sort of worldview. But in that time, I had a growing awareness of Jesus' teachings, especially on nonviolence, and I realized I had to allow Jesus to be the king of my career, which meant not working for the CIA. Was it a bad decision to go to school for political science? Uh, Well, it cost me a couple years and thousands of dollars, so that's kind of a bummer. If I would have started out with the goal of going uh, to seminary, uh, I might be done with school right now, which sounds uh, just wonderful. Um, So maybe it was a bad decision, but I'm not too worried about it. I know for sure that Jesus used it for a profound teaching moment that has resonated with me still today. I have moved closer to Jesus through that decision, and I'm not interested in analyzing what could have been. Now, uh, don't confuse what I'm saying with the platitude, you know, everything happens for a reason. Um, That's generally used as a cover to shirk responsibilities for the decisions we make, even if it's just implicitly. It places the blame on God for poor decisions by us or others, and that's just not reality. What I am saying 
is that Jesus can bring good out of our bad choices, that he uses them further to further our apprenticeship to him, to draw us closer to him. But be aware, because you still have choices to make in order to get Jesus, to allow him to have the space in the situation to bring good out of them. You need to allow him the proper place of authority over your life. You can either be like the disciples who are working hard to apprentice Jesus, or you can be like the religious leaders demanding things of Jesus with no plans of, of acknowledging him as the rightful king of your life. And the great thing about being an apprentice of Jesus, of, of working hard to get him more and more, is that our mistakes and bad choices, far from making us fearful to come near to him, are met by his kindness, patience, compassion, and correction. Are your decisions bringing you closer to Jesus? Or are you closing him out more and more as his teachings and way of life feel like a hindrance to where you want to go? With that in mind, let's invite the Spirit to speak over us, and let's pray. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us, find more teachings and resources from Van City at vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.